Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Welcome, and we are again so grateful and excited to join us. It's going to be me, Matt Harris, and our legal analyst, former DA and former prosecutor, John Snyder, for this first part. Seton and I had recorded something, and then the verdict came down on the Russell Lafitte trial. So kind of shifted gears and pivoted a little bit here. You can reach out to us, MurdochPodcast.com, Murdoch Podcast on Facebook, and Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And again, thanks so much. Please share and rate the episode. Uh, both of us have Thanksgiving commitments, and we weren't able to be at this final day, which got crazy. But fortunately, we had friends and people at the trial and combed through all the, the tweets to get to it. But the banker, Russell Lafitte, former CEO of Palmetto State Bank, and aide Alec Murdoch's found guilty on all counts. Uh, six counts, conspiracy, bank and wire fraud, misapplication of bank funds. It was a three-week trial. Alec Murdoch's name came up a lot in this trial. The jury deliberated for almost 11 hours before coming back with a unanimous verdict. And it was crazy getting to that point. And John and I will walk you through, and I have a lot of questions for John Snyder on this, the goings-on for the, the, the 12 hours of deliberation that went on. It wasn't quite 12 hours. It was uh, 11, maybe. But we want to catch up because last episode, we didn't get to Russell Lafitte being on the stand. Uh, we didn't do very much of that. And the first question to you, John Snyder, is we had heard that Lafitte was going to testify, but in general, are you shocked when a defendant takes the stand? The answer is... Theoretically, no, because you have a constitutional right to defend yourself. But the practical answer is, boy, you better have a really good explanation or you are just walking yourself into a firing line. Yes, and the way that I think Russell Lafitte thought he could win over the jurors, this is just opinion, is that he could play the all shucks. They would see him as the all shucks. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, Murdoch made me do it. Look at me. I'm just this this country guy. I didn't want to be a banker. He mentions at one point in the thing. This was just Alec manipulating me. And that was the whole basic case of the defense. And do you think that's kind of what they were hoping, that his look of like all shucks would work? I think they were banking on his earnest, small-town nature and charm to offset what was cold, hard facts presented in a logical and clear manner by the federal government. And as charming as anyone might be, it is very hard to overcome paperwork and accounting. It's okay to be up there with your own attorneys, right? You know what's coming from them, but... When you face off against a, a federal prosecutor, I, I'm assuming federal prosecutors are some of the people that are kind of at the top of their game. You They're sit just, there for hours in front of them. It can get ugly. It, it can get ugly, and the judge has done a good job in how he selected the jury. This particular 
U.S. Attorney's Office has a lot of experience in trials and in presenting things in a clear and cogent manner. And so it's like that scene in The Untouchables where they talk about, you know, don't worry about the the sexy stuff. We'll get them on tax evasion. Mm. And it's the same thing here. Like, it doesn't matter the all the things that are titillating about a about a case that make us listen. If you say dollar amount X was here, you ordered it to go here, and you didn't have authority to, a jury's not going to have a lot of options other than to convict. The attorneys for Lafitte said that it was all about Alec Murdoch. The quote was, he's an enigma he trusted by everyone, and his clients loved and revered him, and his level of deceit was unimaginable. Lafitte's other attorney, Austin, told the jury Monday in its closing that intent is crucial. Quote, it all really comes down to what is in Russell's mind. If you break the law, you break the law. What's intent have to do with it here? Well, intent is that, that critical element in a crime that you have to have a mental state to be aware that the action that you're taking is wrong. And so here, I think the government proved it. I also think they proved it by not necessarily having the people whose money was moved around as the, quote, victim, but the actual bank is the victim. And so use emotional testimony to elicit facts that prove the bank is the one that was victimized by his crimes. It was it was a very good presentation of evidence. And the only people who testified from the bank on his side were his was his father and his sister. The other interesting thing that popped up was that during Cross, Russell Lafitte said that he didn't pay taxes. He admitted he didn't pay federal income taxes on about four hundred grand he earned in fees from managing the money received in these large settlements by Murdoch's clients. Limehouse forced Lafitte to admit this is from the Monk John Monk article in the state paper. He only reported his income from the fees and paid income taxes in 2021 after FBI and SLED and the bank began asking questions. He admits this on cross. That's got to be damning for a jury if they're trying to figure out intent. Well, if he's skipping on on taxes, right? (laughs) That's exactly it. So you you can't claim you're not part of a criminal enterprise and then say, I knew that I was getting improper fees and then I knew that I wasn't reporting them to... The government he didn't even report it so yeah he's he i think that that little bit of cross just removes reasonable doubt for a juror because they show that he's willing to move money around i mean it's kind of the same of not declaring that money is the same as kind of just rushing these murdoch checks through without asking the board or whoever right i mean it's the same basic concept you're moving money around you're hiding money you're not telling everybody about money He's acting with such a disregard for his obligation and his responsibilities that that rises to the level of criminality. When uh, the prosecution got up, man, Limehouse nailed it. She A 70-minute closing argument, and she's got to go over all these details in this complex case off the cuff. Uh, not off the cuff. I mean, she planned it, but still, she's got to remember all these numbers and all this stuff. And she said Russell Lafitte was the banker, the organizer, the one who kept the trains running. Alec Murdoch was the rainmaker, the one who brought the money in. Russell Lafitte violated the trust of the bank and its customers, and that's why he's standing trial today. How do you uh, like those quotes right there, former prosecutor? Well, I think, I mean, that that's 
that's the key element, and then this is also the the key kickoff to Alex's convictions, most likely. You have clear, convincing evidence. It's now been tested in a court in that area, and it's been shown that a jury down there has no problem convicting uh, once they hear the evidence. And, and the closing argument is a chance to bring everybody back to the, the theory of the case. It points the jury to the relevant facts, and, and, and she probably repeatedly said, I'm not going to tell you what the law is, the judge is, and you've already taken an oath that you will apply the law to these facts. She did a very good job. Now, also I want to point out, we haven't spoken about what Fitz News reported. They say that he, you know, Lafitte had this proffer, this deal with the feds to testify against Murdoch, but it collapsed because, the rumor is, the feds say we'll give you four to five years. And he said, no, he'll take his chances. And now a jury will decide. And it, do you think when the prosecution, because they have a say in the sentencing, correct? I mean, they can say what they recommend. Is that true? That, yeah. So, so the way it works in a federal uh, sentence is, is the jury actually is, is done. They're, they're, they're all done. Their, their responsibility is concluded. It now will be the judge. And so there's a there's an office that handles the pre-sentencing report uh, that's part of the U.S. Marshals Service. They will gather all the evidence. They'll find out whether he was an Eagle Scout. And they, they basically score you, and then they make recommendations to the court. And so the U.S. Attorney's Office will make a recommendation, and the defense attorney will make a recommendation based on what's in that report. Can they put in that report that we offered the guy four to five years, so we want to give him more? Uh, they will not necessarily. So the, the offer is confidential and not okay. not admissible. But, I, I mean, he has got to be thinking to himself, what what did I just pass up? Because he's, I don't know that he's going to get hammered, like 40 years hammered, uh, but he's definitely going to need a toothbrush for spending his night somewhere that's not his home. And we still have some state charges against him, too. Okay, now I want to go to, now that we've got that rolling, uh, my buddy uh, Riley Benson at WCBD. You can find him on The Real Riley Benson on Twitter. Talked to him last night. We are texting back and forth, and he was uh, he, his quote was, this is an absolute madhouse, because it just went cuckoo. And let me, I, I'll run through some of the things that happened. When the jury was released to start debating this, they asked for a transcript of Russell Lafitte's testimony. However, a full transcript wasn't ready yet. So Judge Girdle said, well, tell me what you want. We can read some of them. There was no note back as to what part they wanted. Then the judge called people back to the courtroom, and the jury wanted to hear parts of the Palmetto State Bank 2021 board meeting which was a struggle to get into admission, but then it did. And they played the part about uh, questions about the Badger estate and the Palmetto State Bank attorney was questioning the $680,000 check. Do you have any thoughts on the, the that being asked to be heard again? If you're one of the attorneys, which side is going, oh, crap? 
I think the only people saying no crap during jury deliberations are the are the defendants. The state knows what they've done, and the state knows that if they lose today, they they'll be back tomorrow to win. So it's the the prosecution has a very different attitude during during jury deliberations. The, the defense attorneys over there, like, am I the greatest lawyer ever, or am I, am I about to get hit with the reality that I suck and that my client is? going to be convicted on every count and it's so you're riding an emotional roller coaster over there the the, the government's like ah, okay well let's see let's see what they do and mm-hmm. the longer it goes the, the more concerned you, you get as a as a prosecutor but it can also be in a case like this just the jury being thorough and it was 11 hours and also i think what i'm just speculating but it's a tuesday before thanksgiving Right. The, I, I don't see right away. I said, I don't, this jury's going to finish it because they are not going to want to break and come back on Wednesday. Is, is that possible? I mean, that seems like a thing, right? It, it, it could, the ju- the, but the judge might say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to stay through Wednesday folks. Like when you agreed to be on the jury, you knew, okay. that, you knew that this was going to be an issue. And notes kept flying in, um, two notes from a juror in need of an antibiotic and said that they had been pressured to change their vote. That note came in. Then there was an, Third and fourth notes that a judge, same concern, issues. One of them had an issue with prior jurors' experience of having been bullied. Another note said a juror had been hostile and refused to debate evidence. Uh, Fourth note said a juror had anxiety and really, really wanted an alternate. So you got a feared bullying one, an anxiety one. Uh, those, Those two jurors were eventually released. The defense objected to the process of replacing the juror, and he said it should have been a hung jury. John, these notes i i don't this has to be out of the ordinary this this many notes and two jurors one say i'm just too anxiety one another i'm going to be bullied seems rare to me but what do i know you're the attorney what do you think well notes are normal you have this new level of pressure you you have you know people not like you got a juror that's saying i'm not going to do what the judge says okay well that is absolutely you bring the jury in you go, or, or the judge goes back and talks to him and says, folks, I think we are pretty clear about what your job is. And if you, if you are telling me you can't do that or won't do that, I want to know. And so if that was one of the jurors that was excused, that juror may be called to return for a hearing in front of the judge to say, you, you know, you, you engaged in contempt. You, mm. you, you, you swore an oath that you would do something and you didn't do it. Even if it's anxiety ridden or whatever. Yeah, so then, like, the anxiety and all that is there might be somebody whose spouse is saying, hey, my mother and father are coming into town. You better be done. Yeah, right. There can just be all kinds of pressure on people during a jury trial. And so you want to be mindful of that. The the judge, especially federal judge, he or she is going to do a great job of going back in there and saying, all right, folks, here's here's what we're going to do because – this is the obligation you've undertaken. I would think it's pretty easy to jump to these two, or at least one, wasn't going with the group. Uh, that would have to be the obvious take, because otherwise they just go, hey, let's wrap this baby up. What does that mean as far as the defense appealing? And I'm sure they'll appeal, everybody appeals, but is, this, is, the, is the replacement of jurors a thing? I think it'll be. I'm sure that I'm sure that 
Uh, council objected on the record, which is which was the appropriate thing to do. And then my guess is that they are going to make sure that the judge is also creating a record because federal judges don't like getting overturned for any reason. And so they're going to make sure they're covered and what they're doing. They don't they don't act capriciously or just uh, suddenly because everything they do is is subject to some pretty serious levels of scrutiny. So I, I think it'll be an issue raised on an appeal, but that's the whole reason that you select alternates and you and and during jury selection you question them just as if they will be sitting on the jury because this kind of stuff does happen and you want to be prepared. Now Gurgle Judge Gurgle said we're in virgin territory. I've tried a hundred cases myself and I've been on the bench for thirteen years and I've never seen anything like this. I think it was a combination of two of them and the reasons and 11 hours, well, they replace them finally, and in less than an hour, they come back with the, uh, a verdict. You know, he's out on bond. Some people are saying, why is that? If it was us, we'd be locked up. But is that the case in a federal? Federal court's different. You, I mean, we, we've all seen Tommy Lee Jones. It's hard to run from the marshal. Yeah. And so he's under confinement. He's under monitoring. He has probably done a very good job with whatever the conditions were of pre-trial release. Mm-hmm. And so um, some judges might revoke it. Uh, other judges will not. And so I, I, that's not unusual. That doesn't mean if he's going to get an active sentence, you want to go ahead and get in as quick as you can so you can get 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 start getting credit for time. Right. Um, when will the sentence hearing come? Out? How long do you think that usually takes? Every every circuit is different. Okay. Every every court's different. He's probably knows that he needs to go home and make arrangements for his last Thanksgiving at home, mm-hmm. potentially for a few years, and uh, may maybe maybe his last Christmas for a few years, or or because these are these were nonviolent crimes. Uh, it may be that he gets—I don't know what the sentencing report will look like, but but we'll know kind of exactly where he'll land once that report's uh, submitted to the court. Emily Limehouse, lead prosecutor, told reporters outside the courthouse—this is from a John Monk article—that the government did not have sentencing recommendations at the time. And she said, quote, we really want to recognize the victims here. Natasha Thomas, Hakeem Pinckney, and Arthur Badger, Hannah and Elena Plyler— Malik Williams. Those people were really the heart of this case. They were victimized in some of the most vulnerable situations that any of us can really imagine. It was a three-week trial, 300 exhibits to the jury, spreadsheets, canceled checks, charts, and bank statements. Now we wait to find out how long he will be behind bars, what the appeal process will be like. Then in January, the, the Murdoch murder trial begins. The alibi that he set forth we'll talk about in a little bit on the program the other thing i wanted to note was oh the elena uh spawn tweet she was a one of the plyler sisters but now she's since been uh, married she said in a tweet russell's story isn't finished he has time to make right by people but i hope he starts with his family russell go home loving your wife and kids and you all will continue to be in my prayers. I pray for better days ahead for you. I truly mean it. Very sweet. Because she could be pretty angry if she wanted to be. Now, also, the other thing I wanted to talk about, real quick before I let you go. Prosecutor Limehouse said that she will be prosecuting more of these types of white-collar crimes. 
Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Alec Murdoch's official alibi that has been put into the court documents. Seton, trying to figure out where to start with his alibi. I guess we can run through it. Yeah, let's just go through it. So in the alibi, first of all, says he was not there. That's the main thing, which we're not surprised about that. The alibi says that shortly after nine, Alec Murdoch left Moselle and that Maggie and Paul were alive when he left to go to Almeida, where his mother lived. It's about a 20-minute drive. So, Seton, what happens along that drive, does Alec say in his alibi defense? Well, in his defense, he claims that he spoke to five people on the way to Almeida, which is not a long drive. He spoke to his son, Buster, his brother, John Marvin, his sister-in-law, Liz, who is married to John Marvin. He also spoke with Chris Wilson. He was his long-term attorney friend who he sometimes handled cases with. And also a person named C.B. Rowe. And C.B. Rowe has been all over the internet rumors that he was a caretaker for the Murdoch family and that he possibly had some sort of conflict with Alec and Paul in the weeks leading up to their murders. None of that has been confirmed, the conflict, right? None of that's been confirmed. I don't even 100% know that he was the caretaker. I think there's probably some truth to it. And back in 2011, he was teaching at Thomas Hayward Academy and charged with having an inappropriate relationship with a student was sentenced to probation. That is a name that hasn't come up in official capacity yet. We've not heard about law enforcement interviewing him or anything like that. We've had the rumors and things kicking around, right? Right, but this is the first time we've actually seen him named in a legal document. So he talks to one, two, three. But of course, the Liz Murdoch conversation could be, hey, is John Marvin there? And then you're done. So, but 20 minutes and like five people, a lot. Yes, and I, I believe that John Marvin gave Post and Courier a statement saying that they just had a normal conversation. He gets to his mom's house. His mom suffers from dementia around 920. He talks to the aide who's there, of course, 
Michelle Shelley Smith. He stays for about 25 minutes. Then he leaves at 9.45. And it says that he is headed home to Moselle. And did you notice that they spelled Moselle wrong in the pleading? I did not notice that. Yeah, they spelled it M-O-Z-E-L-L-E instead of M-O-S-E-L-L-E. I thought that was strange. And he also talked to Chris Wilson again. On the way home, yes. Yes. And so he gets back at 10, according to Alex Alibi. He finds the bodies at 10.05, and at 10.07, he calls 911. So that is the timeline, according to Alex Alibi. The hiccup in this is when Jim Griffin, his attorney, has been giving interviews. He doesn't mention this video at 8.44 that both sides of him seem to admit is there uh, of Alec, Maggie, and Paul because our Poolian Alex attorney described it as congenial. Yes. So that makes me assume that it exists. And I'm not even sure why then, if that's the case, why the defense made the murder timeline starting at 8.30. I don't know why they started it so early if, if there is this video which I believe to be true, at 8.44, where they can all be heard. Let's assume that video exists, all right? Uh, let's say, of course, it could be 8.44 in some seconds that they're murdered. So 8.44 to the time he leaves, but he calls it a little bit after 9, but we know that the defense has said that the Alex car starts up at 9.06. So there's a 26-minute window there, which they could have been murdered, but Alec could have been there. And the other window is when he starts up his car, like 9.06, until he reaches home and finds the body at 10.05. So that is, let's, let's call it an hour. It's not really an hour, but so there's an hour, basically, that he's gone, where in that time they could have been murdered. And he, he couldn't have done it, he's saying, in that window. Now, the question is, I, I you have to think that the caretaker and the phone calls and all that, we've said a long time ago that it's going to be expert versus expert, right? I, I, I think so. So it could be a lot of experts arguing, did he make, where did he make those calls from? Yes, he made them, but was he traveling like he claims to have been? Yes, I'm really curious to see the cell phone data. Like we've said before, these are rural locations, so I don't know if cell phone data is quite as accurate as it would be in a city. Right. But it's still, there's got to be some way to tell if he was in fact traveling. And if the aide says he was there at the times Alec says he was, then it takes 20 minutes to drive there. So that's 40 minutes plus 25 standard, 65 minutes. The only thing that has changed is the Jim Griffin thing from before, right? There's nothing else different in this timeline that we would have expected to see or hear. I really think the only new things that we've seen in this alibi defense are we have more information on who he spoke with. Um, we also have the actual name of the aide. And I'd be interested in the aide's recollection because you're not thinking anything about Alec being there, right? So are you necessarily documenting the exact time he's there and the exact time he leaves? I agree. But remember, the HBO special said that Alec called the aide to let him in. So there would be some sort True. of phone record of that. 
Except in the alibi, they don't mention him calling the aide. They don't. They list people he called, but they don't mention the aide. Now, I don't know if they have to put all that stuff in, but they do not mention he called the aide, which would be very important, I would think. Because if you're going about your life, are you really, oh, it's exactly 9.06 or 9.45 when he showed up. You're not going to know exact times, probably. No, I think the only way that you would know exact is if there is a phone record of that. Absolutely. And as we mentioned in our last episode, there are some discrepancies of what Jim Griffith said in the HBO documentary. He said that he woke up and tried to contact Maggie and Paul, was unable to, sent Maggie a text, said he'd see her later, Mm -hmm. and then headed out to his mother's house. Right. And so it didn't sound like he saw them before he left, and that's not what they're saying in this alibi defense either. That will have to play out. As to, I'm really interested. Law enforcement and SLED and Collin County Sheriffs, I assume, interviewed Alec Murdoch, but he, being a lawyer, might have just said, I'm not talking. We've not heard yet about that. That'll be really interesting. Seton Daily Mail article. Yes. Yeah, so just yesterday, Daily Mail came out with an article where this reporter went to where. Buster Murdoch is living in Hilton Head with his girlfriend, and sounded like they just kind of ambushed him. Sure does, yeah. Um, and in this interview, um, they asked him, presumably you are supporting your father. And Buster responds, you have no right to presume anything. He also says, I don't want to see anything in writing anywhere saying that I'm supporting my father. Uh, he also said to the reporter that he had no interest in saying anything. And he said, I have no comment. Assuming what we know is that Buster had nothing to do with anything of his father's stealing the money or anything to do with the possible murders or any of the other crimes that were committed, kind of feel bad for the dude. He's lost his mom, brother, his dad's probably going to be in jail forever. And people are camping outside his house. Yeah, yeah. People hiding in the bushes, taking pictures of him walking his dog. All right, a couple of uh, emails and comments we've received. This is from Cara. She says, I love that Matt and Seton discuss more than scandal and deceit. Here are the top three reasons I love their podcast. They bring us the latest scoop without bias and drama or an agenda. Number two, John Snyder. (laughs) Number three, they interview experts who are interesting, educational, and professional. You two can learn about money laundering, exhuming bodies, jailhouse calls, High-velocity impact spatter and workman's compensation. Side note, grateful to Trooper Moore for sharing his story. We are also very grateful to Trooper Moore, and I have spoken with a few state employees who upped their car insurance after listening to our, our episode. Great, great. Glad we could help. And we are glad you spent a little bit of time with us. And have a great Thanksgiving. And... We've got a lot of Murdoch stuff coming up. We're always grateful. Please share and rate and comment and reach out. Murdoch Podcast Facebook, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk soon, friend. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. 
and me. Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. That was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 